Today on the Matt Wall Show, a half-naked pop star desecrates a historical artifact while the left looks on and cheers. We'll discuss. Also, Biden is uh, now at the point in his dementia decline where he is literally seeing ghosts. Plus, the prime minister of New Zealand says that misinformation is an act of war. In our daily cancellation, a major airline will now allow, allow pilots to cross-dress on the job, all in the name of inclusivity. All of that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. There's a, an easy way to adjust your spending and saving strategies. You just call my sponsors at American Financing. American Financing is America's home for home loans where you can get a free, no obligation financial review and learn new ways to get out of debt faster. No upfront or hidden fees, just a simple conversation around ways to add hundreds back to your monthly budget. They might suggest consolidating debt or adjusting your mortgage terms, even accessing cash. Either way, American Financing can help you. You don't need uh, perfect credit to make it happen. They want to help as many families as possible. That's the goal here, which is one of the many reasons I like them so much. It just takes 10 minutes today to learn more. And uh, you can't afford, really, to not explore every avenue to save money and help your finances. You're not getting help from uh, D.C., that's for sure. So call 866-569-4711. That is, again, 866-569-4711. Or you can visit AmericanFinancing.net. NMLS, 182-334. NMLS, ConsumerAccess.org. You'll begin to see the world with greater clarity. Uh, things start to make some kind of sense once you realize and accept two points about the elites who run this country, um, our betters as they see themselves anyway. One is that they hate you and everything you stand for and everything you believe. This cannot be stressed enough. It's not a very pleasant thing to think about, but it's the truth. It shouldn't be a breaking news bulletin either. I mean, after all, they're not exactly trying to hide it. They despise you, your family, your ancestors on down the line. The second point is that they are both uh, petty and creative. So they'll take advantage of every opportunity to humiliate and demoralize you. And they'll see such opportunities in situations that wouldn't have even occurred to you. Okay, the pettier, the better, as far as they're concerned. And with these two points in mind, you can begin to make sense of a headline that if you didn't know any better, you'd think was some kind of drunken mad lib. But uh, here it is from CNN. Lizzo performs on stage with James Madison's 200-year-old crystal flute. That's exactly what happened. Set up initially by a tweet from Carla Hayden of the Library of Congress. She posted, quote, The Library of Congress has the largest flute collection in the world with more than 1,800. It includes President James Madison's 1813 crystal flute. Lizzo, we would love for you to come see it and even play a couple when you're in D.C. next week. Like, like your song, they are good as hell. Winky face emoji. Now, it would be bad enough that the librarian of Congress is using emojis and the phrase good as hell in communications from official government accounts, but uh, they took it many steps further. A few days later, uh, official representatives from the Library of Congress, along with Secret Service, came up on stage during a Lizzo concert in D.C., handed her the priceless historical artifact, and uh, let her do this with it. Let's watch it together. Okay, so there they are. Library of Congress, they hand her the flute. No big deal. If she drops it, just shatters and nothing to worry about there. She's in her see-through onesie. She's got the thong on. This crystal is like playing out of a, a, a wine glass. Okay. Let's see, let's see this performance. Is she, is she gonna is she gonna perform a beautiful
Yep. And there's the twerking. There's the twerking. Oh, she's raging in the air. You know, again, drop it, no big deal. This is, uh, is actually, they've done studies on this, and if you watch um, a Lizzo video, it's, it's, a, it's, like a, it's scientifically guaranteed that within 30 seconds of when the video starts, she will be twerking. So there's no, there is no footage of her that lasts longer than 30 seconds where she's not twerking. Now, to make sure that we uh, have the quote correct for the historical record, Lizzo said, I just twerked and played James Madison's flute from the 1800s, and that she did. Now, needless to say, there were many members of the media attending this concert, and they couldn't stop gushing about the beauty and power and historical significance of what they just witnessed. Now, in fairness, that, that is how they react to literally everything Lizzo does or says. If they saw her eating waffles for breakfast, which I'm sure she does quite frequently, they, they would declare it the most brave and inspirational waffle-related waffle event they'd ever witnessed. If Lizzo were to then burp at the conclusion of her meal, they would tearfully exclaim, that her belch sounded like the choirs of angels singing from on high. This is the rule the media realizes because Lizzo is obese, she's female, she's black, which means that everything she does is by default heroic and wonderful and any criticism by default is automatically racist and sexist and body shaming on top of it. So with that in mind, I mean, Lizzo twerking in a glittery thong while manhandling a historic artifact once owned by a founding father, well, I mean, they literally have no choice but to crown such a moment as the greatest achievement of all time, the culmination of human history, the most spectacular expression of humanity's potential. Just a couple of, of examples here will suffice. Uh, Fox DC reporter Sierra Fox tweeted, history is freaking cool. Of course, it's the nation's capital, so Secret Service and Capitol Police joined her on stage. Why? Because she's the first ever to play President James Madison's 1813 crystal flute, courtesy of Library of Congress. Super amazing to witness. Then media executive um, Indira Lakshmanan chimed in with this. Joyful and life-affirming superstar Lizzo played D.C. tonight. Most unexpected moment? Library of Congress loaned her President James Madison's 1813 crystal flute to play on stage, making her the first person to do so. She thanked Library of Congress for preserving history and making it cool. And many other tweets and headlines just like that. Now, we should note here that, that Lizzo is indeed a classically trained uh, flautist, as, as, um, as her defenders have pointed out. She is capable of respectfully and skillfully playing flute. But that's not what the Library of Congress arranged in this case or what happened on stage. The fact that she's a, in reality, a talented musician, at least when it comes to the flute, just makes her whole career, and especially the incident on stage, all the more outrageous and gross. I mean, there's another video floating around of her playing the flute seriously while, while fully clothed that I guess happened before this or after, I don't know. They could have simply left it at that, and few would complain. But instead, they chose to have Lizzo in her see-through thong make a gr grotesque mockery of a priceless crystal artifact with deep ties to American history. Why? I mean, what's the point? It's such a weird and petty thing to do, isn't it? Well, yes, exactly. The pettiness is pointed and intentional, as always. This is the game, okay? They do something absurd and bizarre and degrading, 
and then they wait for the reaction that they know is coming, and that's why they did it, and then they accuse the other side of being petty and trivial. So they do the thing, the petty, trivial thing, and then if we notice it, we are the petty, trivial people. What's more, they themselves will then hail this degrading display. Uh, they'll, they'll declare it to be historic and important and amazing, but then mock anyone who criticizes it on the grounds that they shouldn't care about it because it's unimportant. It doesn't make any sense, but this is the mind game. And it puts us in a bind quite by design. Because if we register our protest, you know, if we say anything, we say, I don't like this, please don't do that. Um, we will have given them the attention they want and, in a sense, you might say, walked right into the trap. But if we say nothing at all, if we simply accept, for instance, that invaluable pieces of American history can be used as stage props by morbidly obese, half-naked pop stars, then we will have also given them what they want, what they want most of all, which is our acquiescence, our submission. But either way, they claim victory which of course is demoralizing. And in the end, ultimately, demoralization is the point. So what the elites want to express when it comes down to it, whether it's by tearing down statues or taking names off of schools or doing anything else they do or having a weirdo in a onesie twerk with James Madison's flute, whatever it is, what they want to get across is that nothing you care about has value. Your heritage and history are meaningless. Your culture and traditions are worthless. They will tell you what has value, what you should see as important, what should matter to you. This is what a ruling force does to a conquered people. It tears down and desecrates everything they hold dear. And it will have achieved its final end when you submit to the gaslighting and you finally agree that, well, these things don't actually matter when they've claimed your, your mental and spiritual compliance, I mean, then they've really won, which is why we should never submit. Now let's get to our five headlines. Uh, I also wanted to mention, we'll get off this subject in a moment, but you know, it's, it's just what really annoys me is that there are plenty of conservatives online, and you always have these, you know, useful idiots who are, who are saying, well, you know, I think it's kind of cool Lizzo playing the flute. Or, or, they're, or they're doing what I mentioned before. They're saying, oh, well, it's a, it's a trap. If you, you know, we can't feed into it and act like we care. We just have to emphasize that, okay, if that's, if that's what you're going with, then you're just accepting. You're just saying, well, okay, you can do that. I mean, what, what, take, you know, take the Declaration of Independence and use it as a napkin. Like, give that to her next, uh, next time she is eating waffles. You can use it as a napkin. Why not? You know, it's, it's cool. It's historic. And it's just, a, it's, just a, it's, just a, it's just an object. Who cares? And why should we care about that? Meanwhile, they'll tell you to their face what they're actually doing. So here, here are some, uh, a couple other tweets I didn't mention. This one is from Tiffany C. Lie. She's a uh, law scholar. She says, Lizzo, a black female superstar collaborating with Carla Hayden, the first African-American and first woman librarian of Congress, to use a flute from James Madison, the founding father who originated the Three-Fifth Compromise, and also the Library of Congress itself? What symbolism? Then she continues, James Madison was America's fourth president. He helped shape the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. He also was a slave owner, and he created the Three-Fifths Compromise that each enslaved person 
would count as, as three-fifths of a person for state electoral vote totals, a complicated legacy. Now, she's mangling the history with James Madison and the three-fifths compromise. That's not really the point. Uh, the point is that what, what she is saying, and she's not the only one, uh, Ellie Mistal, who's uh, Mistal, however you pronounce his name, you see him on CNN a lot. He says this, if any of James Madison's descendants is offended by Lizzo, uh, if they want to try, try out the 200-year-old iron collar white folks would affix to our ancestors who tried to escape James Madison's clutches, I'm sure somebody at the National Museum of African American History could hook you up. And a lot of, a lot of takes just like this. What, what are they saying? I mean, they are, they're clearly saying that the way they see it, part of the point of this flute stunt was uh, not only demoralization, as we talked about, but also very specifically, it's an act of racial retribution. It's sort of like getting back at James Madison um, for his position on slavery. And we're going to do that by taking a priceless artifact that, that belonged to him and just making a mockery of it. But sure, I mean, if you want to be above it all and say, ah, who cares, whatever, it doesn't matter, you can go ahead and do that. But you are ultimately giving the left exactly what it wants. All right, much is being made of this, and, uh, and, and for good reason, really. Joe Biden, at an event yesterday, tried to summon the dead, calling for a congresswoman who had tragically died in a car accident back in the summer. And, well, we'll, well let's play it first, and then we'll talk about it. Here it is. Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, she was going to be here to help make this a reality. Uh, well, again, she, she's, she's dead. And, and what, what makes this worse is that apparently, from what, from what I've uh, read anyway, they actually, prior to Biden coming out on stage, they played a, a tribute to, to this uh, congr- congresswoman who had died. And yet still somehow he was calling for her. Uh, even though she's dead. Now, as always, though, the cover-up is worse than the crime. And uh, that was the case here because Karen Jean Pear was asked about this. And, uh, you know, now, look, in fairness to her, and I I rarely would say this, but in in fairness to anyone who's tasked with being the White House press secretary for the Biden administration, anyone who has to represent it or explain the sorts of things that Biden does— you're in an impossible situation. So we do have to realize that. And I know that on the right, we give Karen Jean Pierre a hard time. And, and, and deservedly so often. But it is impossible. Because, like, what's the real answer? Why did that happen? How do you explain that event? Well, it happened because Joe Biden has dementia and is losing his mind. Is actually losing his very little grasp on reality at this point. So that's why. That's why it happened. And we all know that. But as White House press secretary, she can't really exactly say that. So she has to come up with some sort of excuse. I'm not sure that there's a good excuse, but uh, let's go through this, this exchange. Let's play the first one here. What happened in the hunger event today? The president appeared to look around the room uh, for an audience member, a member of Congress who passed away last month. He seemed to indicate she might be in the room. What, so- what happened? 
So the president was, uh, as you all know, you guys were watching uh, today's event, a very important event on uh, food insecurity. The president was naming uh, the congressional champions on this issue and was acknowledging her incredible work. He had uh, he had already uh, planned to welcome the congresswoman's family uh, to the White House on Friday. There will be a, a bill signing in her honor this coming Friday. Uh, so, of course, she was on his mind. She was of top of mind uh, for the president. He uh, looks very much looks forward to discussing her remarkable legacy of public service with them when he sees her family this coming Friday. Okay, so she she was top of mind. Uh, which now that part you could believe. Okay, you know she was working on this issue. Uh, she just recently died, the terrible tragedy, top of mind. But then you, see, I, I've, I mean, there are many people who have died who uh, I think about, and I've never imagined that they were in the room. And so the media is actually shockingly not satisfied with that answer, and they, and and so now we go into this. This actually goes on for I don't know 15 minutes where she's going back and forth, not just with, well, this isn't like one of those things where it's just Peter Ducey going back and forth with Karen Jean Pair. It's, it's everyone else in the room is uh, not happy with the answer. And so we'll go through, I'm not going to watch the entire exchange, but here's, here's, uh, it continued here. You said, Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? She must not be here. No, I totally understand. I just, I just explained she was on top of mind. Uh, um, you know, this wasn't what we were able to witness today and what the president was able to lift up uh, in this uh, at this conference at this event uh, was how her uh, her focus on um, wanting to uh, uh, deal with combat food insecurity in America and this is something that he was lifting up and honoring and again he knows that he's going to see her family this coming Friday there's a bill signing uh, that's going to happen in renaming a VA clinic in, in Indiana after the late congresswoman he knows that he is going to see her family and she was a top of mind she was top of she's going to stick with that what look what else do you want her to say Okay, I'm at, you know what? I didn't think that this was going to happen, but I am defending Karen Jean Pair on this. What do you, there's nothing, there's, there's no good excuse for this. He was trying to conjure the dead. He was, he was seeing ghosts, literally. Do you want her to say that? She can't say that. So this is, uh, she, she, before she went out there, you know, she's thinking like, what am I going to say about this? My God. And this is what she came up with. And I, I don't know. I'm not sure I could have done any better. What's really significant about this, besides the fact that our that the president of the United States has lost his mind, I mean that's that is unfortunately old news. Um, what's significant about it, if anything, aside from that, is just that again the media actually asking follow-ups, not accepting the first answer they get, um, which you don't see very often. So it seems to me now is that because the media has decided to do their jobs, decided that they're going to have integrity and. Uh, you know, operate with some journalistic ethics or anything like that? Well, no, of course not. It's just because, um, you know, if, if I'm to guess, it's that they realize, and maybe for a lot of them, the final wake-up moment was that, when they saw him calling for someone who had died, they realized that they, you know, they this is not going to work in 2024. They can't go into 2024 with this guy. And so they're going to try to take him down while there's still time to find someone else to put there. Um, so that, that, I think, is what's actually happening. 
Now, so we're, while we're on the subject of people in the White House uh, babbling, I, I've also had this I wanted to play for you just because it's, it's fun. We heard from Keisha Lance Bottoms a few days ago. She's the new White House advisor. She uh, used to be uh, she used to be the mayor of Atlanta, where she did a horrible job, and she oversaw, like every other Democrat mayor in the country, oversaw the destruction of her, the, the continued destruction and collapse of her city. And then when she left, she was awarded with this job in the White House. And um, it seemed to me like she spent too much time around Kamala Harris. So let's listen to this. So can you give me specifics on what you're doing in terms of that coordination with other countries? Well, as you've mentioned, we are already having discussions with other world leaders and making sure that as we are dealing with the challenges that we are facing right now, uh, that we are also looking at long-term strategies on how we can globally work together to address this issue, whether it be migrants coming into the United States or going into other countries. This is something that we all have to be thoughtful about and all work together to address the challenges. And also, again, remembering that many of these people uh, may not necessarily receive asylum in the United mm -hmm. States, but also being very thoughtful that these are families, these are women, these are children who are fleeing communism. I don't think anybody uh, wants to pack up and leave their homeland and walk days at a time. So it's something that we know is a crisis and a challenge that the president is taking head on. Yeah, so she's asked about what specific things, like how are you going to deal with the illegal immigrant crisis on the border, although they don't say illegal immigrant, they say now it's just migrant. Um, so, which by the way, that, that does appear to be the new, so they've kind of gotten away from undocumented immigrants. They got away from that, now it's just migrant. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Well, it's just, this is, how, this is how it works. You just change the language periodically, uh, even if there's no particular reason to do it. You change it just to change it. So now it's migrant. Now we're allowed to say migrant. Uh, certainly not illegal though. So she's asked, what specific plans does the White House have? You're very critical of what Ron DeSantis has done. You're critical of what Greg, Greg Abbott has done. So what are you going to do? And her answer is that we are already having discussions with other world leaders and making sure that as we are dealing with the challenges that we are facing right now, that we are also looking at long-term strategies on how we can globally work together. That's, that is uh, almost puts Kamala Harris to shame in terms of um, using the most amount of words to say the least. So when you look at the kind of inverse relationship between the, the amount of words used and, and, what, and how much is actually being said, quite impressive. All right, this is from uh, Daily Wire, latest on Hurricane Ian. Hurricane Ian slammed into southwest Florida as a powerful Category 4 hurricane Wednesday afternoon after more than 2 million Floridians were given evacuations order with, evacuation orders with 150 mile per hour winds. Hurricane Ian tied for the fourth strongest hurricane to ever hit the state. Um, the National Hurricane Center said that the hurricane was moving north-northeast at approximately nine miles per hour and uh, then was expected to slow down and turn northeast on Thursday. Uh, this has been, by the way, another obviously a challenge for Ron DeSantis as, as governor. You know, like when it comes to the, the actual act of governing, um, and uh, I think yet again he's hit it out of the ballpark organizing the evacuation, dealing with all of the emergency response and everything else. Seems like he's done a fantastic job. You're not going to hear that from the media, of course. Instead, they're going to talk about, uh, they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk even about the hurricane itself. Uh, what they want to talk about is climate change. So here uh, is CNN on that. 
Uh, Ian is coming. Ian's here. John, we just felt a marked increase in wind speeds within the last 10 minutes or so. We were riding about 40, 50 miles an hour. It was hard to fathom that speed tripling in the next few hours, but we're now getting maybe 70 mile an hour gusts here. We're right at the point where US 43 heads uh, across the Peace River here. I'm just in front of the memorial for Hurricane Charlie, which in 2004 devastated this town and sent a wake-up call to this community about the threats of living on the coast in a rapidly warming planet. Uh, as a result of that storm, they were the first community in Florida to put in a climate adaptation plan, a sea level, coastal resiliency plan that they're, you know, have been working on for years now, and this will be the test. Uh, it's hard to build power lines or, or building codes for 17-foot storm surge, though. That's the the crazy variable here right now. No one has ever seen that, so we don't know what that looks like, but this is exactly what climate scientists have been warning about for a long time, and now we get to see it up close. John? Oh, now we get to see it up close. Now we get to see a hurricane for the first time. We've never seen that before. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of like the visual there of, uh, did you see how useless these people are? The hurricane is it's, it's bearing down on you right now. You're in the, basically in the middle of the hurricane, and you're talking about climate change. This, this is one of the reasons why leftists make terrible leaders. They make terrible governors. They make terrible mayors. They can't run anything because they can't deal with specific practical problems. Like we talked about yesterday, and, and as uh, someone on CNN had to remind Don Lemon, Whatever you feel about climate change, whatever you think about it, it's there, that's not a useful conversation right now because right now the hurricane is here and that's what we got to deal with. Okay? Even if it's true that in theory you could have passed legislation that would stop it, it's not true, that's absurd. But if it is, even if it was, that's not going to help us right now because the hurricane's here. We got we to deal with that. Um, so on the left... All they ever want to do, they want, they want to have like these abstract conversations. They want to sit around having abstract conversations about what's the, what's the, the root of all this? Where is all this coming from? I mean, they do this with hurricanes. They do it with crime in the city. And there are, there are times and places for those conversations. And when it comes to those conversations, they're wrong about everything they say, which is another problem. But when you're in charge of dealing with it, you need to actually be able to Grap, you know, grapple with the problem itself on a, on a practical level. So, yeah, you, we, we could sit around pontificating about uh, the, the, the criminal justice system and why, why, what, what leads people to a life of crime? Why do you have all crime and in, in, in so much crime in some of these communities and less in others? I mean, that's, we can talk about all that. Well, the problem is that the people that run the cities, that's all they're doing is just talking about it. And when you try to get them to focus on the practical problem itself, like what are we going to do? Okay, yeah, you could, we could discuss the roots of it, but now we have, the situation right now is that we've got a lot of dangerous people running around these cities killing people. What are we going to do about that right now? Right now, what are we going to do about it? That's, that's they're, they're totally ill-equipped to talk about that at all. Um, 
The New Zealand prime minister has a solution to climate change herself, and as she laid out to the UN, um, her idea is that, uh, well, if we ban people from questioning it, that's how we can save lives here and stop hurricanes. Let's listen. This week, we launched an initiative alongside companies and nonprofits to help improve research and understanding of how a person's online experiences are curated by automated processes. This will also be important in understanding more about mis- and disinformation online, a challenge that we must, as leaders, address. Sadly, I think it's easy to dismiss this problem as one in the margins. I can certainly understand the desire to leave it to someone else. As leaders, we're rightly concerned that even the most light-touch approaches to disinformation could be misinterpreted as being hostile to the values of free speech that we value so highly. But while I cannot tell you today what the answer is to this challenge, I can say with complete certainty that we cannot ignore it. To do so poses an equal threat to the norms we all value. After all, how do you successfully end a war if people are led to believe the reason for its existence is not only legal but noble? How do you tackle climate change if people do not believe it exists? How do you ensure the human rights of others are upheld when they are subjected to hateful and dangerous rhetoric and ideology? The weapons may be different, but the goals of those who perpetuate them is often the same, to cause chaos and reduce the ability of others to defend themselves, to disband communities, to collapse the collective strength of countries who work together, but we have an opportunity here to ensure that these particular weapons of war do not become an established part of warfare. In these times, I'm acutely aware of how easy it is to feel disheartened. We are facing many battles we get the point on there. many fronts. And it's quite chilling, actually. So she's, she's talking about misinformation as a weapon of war. So we're, what, she's, what she's urging on a global and international scale is that misinformation be treated as an act of war. Where, where does that take us? What, um, what privileges does that grant them if they can treat it as an act of war? Now, I, I think we, we miss the point sometimes when we engage with this and like we, we argue that, um, well, uh, climate change skepticism, that's not misinformation. So what she's saying there is that if you're skeptical about climate change or about man-made climate change, or if you're skeptical at any level at all, even if you're willing to say that, wait, well, okay, of course, climate change exists, climate's change, we all know that, no one denies it. Uh, do human beings contribute to it to some extent? I mean, it, it, everything contributes to it to some extent, you might say, so maybe to some extent. Uh, but I, I don't agree necessarily with all of the dramatic claims that you're making about this. But, but, but even that, is uh, that's misinformation. Like a kind of qualified skepticism is misinformation. She's saying. That's what everyone on the left says. And often we will respond to that by, by trying to prove that, no, well, it's not misinformation. You're wrong about that. that. That almost doesn't matter. So the real point here is that the government cannot be in the business of controlling information. Of, of declaring what is legitimate information and what is not. 
Um, controlling what people believe. That's what they actually want to do. They want to get inside your head and tell you what you should believe about the world and what you should not believe. And then they want to go one step further and say, well, if they want to criminalize. They want to cr criminalize certain beliefs. That's the idea here. And if they can control the information, if we, uh, if we allow them to seize control of information and criminalize certain forms of information, then they control everything because we live in the information age. You control the information, you control the world. And that's really the point here. Yesterday, we talked about the problems with that uh, fake study, which supposedly proves, speaking of misinformation, actual misinformation, so there was that fake study supposedly proving that, uh, quote, gender-affirming double mastectomies are good for minors. And we went through all the problems with it. You know, the, the study comes along just in the nick of time as we've been, um, as so-called top surgery for minors has come under intense scrutiny. And in, in Tennessee, we're, we're working towards banning double mastectomies for minors. And just in the nick of time, CBS reports and then other media outlets picked up this um, peer-reviewed study, which supposedly proves that actually this is good for minors. We went over the problems with the study. I mean, it's, it's and, and the problems are almost too numerous to count. I mean, for one thing, it, just to review, the study was funded by a hospital. It was funded and conducted by a hospital that itself conducts double mastectomies on minors. So they have a financial stake in it. They, they're, they're trying to prove that what they're already doing is legitimate and good. Uh, so that's a problem. They, they did the follow-up three months after the fact, which is when three months later, three months after a significant life choice has been made, that is when regret is least likely. Because right at three months, you know, especially for something like this, right at three months, that's, a, that's, that's when, you know, the, uh, the, the victim, as I say, we're not even calling them patients, victims, that's when the victim is starting to, you know, is, is really starting to recover physically, so they're feeling a little bit better, and uh, it's not, but it's not nearly enough time for them to have reflected on what they did and realize how they've impacted the rest of their life. It's not enough time for that. So they cut off the study right at three months, and then also they uh, mysteriously there were people who dropped out of the study and so therefore didn't count towards the final results. They don't explain. Well, what does it mean that they dropped out? Well, what happened to them? They don't explain that. I think it's, it's reasonable to assume that the people who dropped out of the study, that would be uh, girls who got the surgery and then stopped responding and didn't, didn't fill out any surveys or anything like that after the fact. Is it because they regretted it? So that, um, among other problems... But then Jesse Singal has, has this. So there was a, another really fundamental issue with this study that I didn't even notice. So he tweets this. The study which just came out showing that uh, top surgery works, quote unquote, after a three-month follow-up, was based in part on this 17-item chest dysphoria scale. After getting surgery, the kids' CDS scores went down. But the scale largely measures whether you have breasts that cause you discomfort. So this is apparently, according to Jesse Singal, the actual survey um, that these girls were, were, were told to fill out. And this is what they used in the study. Measuring their chest dysphoria. 
And what they found, or, you know, what they found is that um, a girl is less likely to have dysphoria about her breasts if she doesn't have them. And then that's what they're declaring in the study. But listen to what, listen to uh, the actual items on this chest dysphoria scale. This is what it says. Um, one, I like looking at my chest in the mirror. And then they're, they're, they're asked to sort of rate each of these statements on a, on a certain scale. Two, taking a shower slash bath is difficult because I have to see my chest. Three, I avoid going to the beach and or swimming in public because of my chest. I get gendered as female because of my chest. Dating slash forming intimate partnerships is more difficult because of my chest. Physical intimacy, sexual activity is difficult because of my chest. I have struggled to make future plans because of my chest. I avoid exercise because of my chest. I avoid shopping slash buying clothing because of my chest. I avoid seeking medical care because of my chest. I feel like my life has not started because of my chest. I avoid swimming in private places because of my chest. I have to buy slash wear certain clothes because of my chest. Um, I, I sleep with a binder at night. I avoid using locker rooms because of my chest. I worry that people are looking at my chest. I participate in, li in life less than others because of my chest. So you see what they're doing here. I mean, uh, many of these questions, several of them anyway, it's like any, any girl or any woman could answer yes to. I, I buy certain clothing because of my chest. So, so if, you, if you buy a bra, if you're a woman and you buy a bra, then already you're on the chest dysphoria scale. Just by simply buying a bra, then you count at least a little bit towards, you are on the chest dysphoria spectrum, according to this, because of the fact that you buy a bra. Um, if you get gendered as female because of your chest, according to this, then you're, you're on the spectrum for chest dysphoria. You have a little bit of chest dysphoria. And then most of the rest of it is just, you know, these are things that many girls deal with as they're growing through puberty and they're getting older and their bodies are changing. Male and female, as you go through puberty, your body changes. It, could, it changes in ways you didn't expect or didn't anticipate. Um, and so you feel, to a certain extent, sort of not at home in your body. That, that's all very normal. I think it's probably, uh, it's, those feelings are more intense among, among girls than they are around, among boys because the changes are more significant and severe um, and affect your life more. But all of that is normal. And so what they're doing here is they're taking these normal feelings that anyone would feel, and uh, they're categorizing that as a symptom of chest dysphoria. Which not only for them proves that uh, after the fact that the top surgery was the right thing to do, but it also has the effect of suggesting. So part, part of the idea here is if you give this, uh, this survey to a girl before she has the top surgery, then it's a way of suggesting to her, hey, by the way, you might want to look into this. Because she'll go down that list and say, yes, yeah, well, that applies to me. That applies to me. That applies to me. Well, I guess I need to chop my breasts off. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. All right. Uh, let's see. There's one other thing I wanted to mention. This is from the Daily Wire. It says, Stranger Things star Caleb McLaughlin told a group over the weekend that some fans of the show are racist because they wouldn't take pictures with him during the first season. 
In a video that surfaced on Twitter on Sunday, the 20-year-old actor said at the Heroes Comic Con Belgium that he dealt with racism early in his career after being the only black kid on the series. McLaughlin said, it definitely took a toll on me as a younger kid. My very first Comic-Con, some people didn't stand in my line because I was black. Some people told me like, oh, I didn't want to be in line because you were mean to 11. Even now, some people don't follow me or don't support me because I'm black. Uh, he, he also shared that sometimes overseas you'll feel the racism, the bigotry. Uh, sometimes it's hard to talk about and for people to understand, but when I was younger, it definitely affected me a lot. But there's more. So the evidence that he was a victim of racism is that when he went to Comic-Con, um, there, were there weren't as many people in his line as in other lines, and he knows it's because of racism. He continues, um, let's see. He also says at another point, I'm trying to find the exact quote here, but he also talks about how uh, he has fewer Instagram followers than, than some of his co-stars. He says, why do I have the least amount of followers? I'm on the same show as everybody from season one. My parents had to be like, it's the sad truth, but it's because you're the black child on the show. <laughs> so he has 15 million followers on Instagram. He has 15 million followers on Instagram, which is less than some people on the show, but more than others. And according to him, he said to his parents, hey, mom and dad, I, got, I only have 15 million Instagram followers. And his parents said to him, yeah, it's because you're black. It's your, you're a victim of racism. That's what it is. If you weren't black, then you'd have, you know, you'd have, to, you'd have 30 million followers. This is uh, Hollywood actors. They just, they absolutely love accusing their own fans of racism. This is what they love to do more than anything. And it is seriously every week now, there's another one of these. And on top of that, it, it also appears that they're all mind readers. So when he's at Comic-Con and there are fewer, and he looks over at one line and there's a few more people in it, and he can look and he can read all their minds and tell that the reason they're not in his line is that they hate black people. Makes a lot of sense. Let's get to the comment section. OJH says, I'm 26, almost 27. When I look back on my teen years and early 20s, I'm continuously shocked at the difference in my ability to make decisions and predict outcomes. It's actually kind of frightening to get over that hump and realize your teenage decisions were basically all shots in the dark. Yeah, I'm glad you said uh, early 20s because that's important too. We, we have 18, so we talk about how grotesque and horrible it is to do this to, to kids who are under the age of 18, and it is but even above the age of 18. So 18 is kind of this imaginary cutoff date, but when it comes to psychological and emotional development, um, even at the age of 18, there is still quite a lot of work that needs to be done into your early 20s. I mean, I, I myself can look, I can, I can look back at myself in my early 20s and say, I don't even know, it's, it's, might as well be a different person's life. That's how different I am from that person. And I am not the only you know, adult who can say that. So it's a very, very common to feel that way. In fact, you know, if you if you don't feel that way, if you're in your 30s or 40s and you don't feel that way when you look back at yourself on your in your early 20s, either you were uncommonly uh, mature, which is possible, or uh, you haven't matured at all, which is a problem. But you're exactly right. Um, really, to I mean, to do this to anyone, 
but including in your early 20s is horrific. Let's see. Uh, LFTR says the cutoff date for the study tells all. To gauge regret on a lifelong decision, you must allow for a substantial amount of time to elapse in order for the permanence of the choice to set in. Just about everyone can intuitively gauge that one year is probably the very lowest cutoff to attempt to observe regret on a decision in which the entire rest of your life is the window for the condition to manifest. If the study chose a six-month cutoff, this would be highly suspect. At three months, you are likely right around the time of being completely healed from the surgery. The feeling of normalcy on the recovery standpoint can alone can fully dis- displace any potential for feelings of regret about the choice. This is literally the time frame in which the regret is least likely and very obviously the reason they chose this um, nearly instantaneous cutoff for the, for the study. They might as well have asked if they regretted the surgery before they underwent it. Right, exactly. They might as well ask the next day. Um, let's see. Jesse Miller says, it looks like Matt's office is located in the middle of a Hawaiian jungle, plus the weather never changes. We'll get to the bottom of this come winter. This is my protest against climate change right there behind me. See it every day. Uh, let's see. Another one says, Dude Perfect is a YouTube channel for kids. They do trick shots, pranks, and sports content. They're awesome. They're Christian and a great influence on kids. My sister went to a show and they prayed and did the devotional at the end. Um, for the kids that some of them have probably never even heard of the gospel, get into it, Matt. Yeah, I got a lot of uh, Dude Perfect defenses in the comments. I, I never uh, criticized Dude Perfect, by the way. I was just, I, I have no idea who they are. I've like, never heard of them at all. Sounds like they're great. Never heard of them. Um, simply trying to make a point about the fracturing of culture and how kids, kids these days have entirely their own culture, their own celebrities, their own pop culture scene, everything all to themselves which uh, we, we tend to take for granted because, you know, we take for granted anything that started happening yesterday. We take for granted as just inevitable, and we assume it's always been this way. But that's not the case. Um, at least it shouldn't be. Let's see. Anne says, I want to take you seriously about your crusade against genital mutilation, but con- you continue to ignore the most common form, circumcision. There's not any point in trying to ban genital mutilation if you're going to make an exception for that. Um, I find this point that I hear sometimes exceptionally annoying and, and ridiculous. Um, and you're also, it, it's, you're doing a big favor to the left. And maybe that's your point. Maybe that's what you're trying to do. But this is exactly an analogy that they want to make. In fact, there was someone, I think it was a Tennessee lawmaker yesterday on Twitter, said that our attempts to uh, ban these things in Tennessee is, a, is an infringement on, on the religious freedom of Jews. Because she's, she's drawing a comparison between circumcision and um, an actual castration. So, that, so when you do that, that's exactly what they want. They want to say, oh, you see, they're two exactly the same things. Uh, so if, you, if, you're, if you're fine with one, you should be fine with the other. But of course, they're not the same thing at all. Can you see the difference between circumcision, the removal of foreskin, and the removal of the entire sex organ? Can can you not agree that there's a distinction to be made between those two things? I I, I don't know how else to explain it. I mean, if 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 it's not self-evident to you that these are two vastly different things, then um, no matter how you feel about circumcision, you can be opposed to it, it's fine, but it's, it's just not at all the same. Um... Joshua says, Matt, I can't agree with you on your final topic. These days, companies will take advantage of you if you let them. Boundaries are important. And for most people, they can put in all 
They can put in all the effort in the world, but it doesn't translate to greater success. Well, yes, as I said, boundaries are important in the workplace. Boundaries are important everywhere in your life, right? Um, but the skill, right, is, is in how you set those boundaries. Because if you're just running into the situation saying, back off, everyone, leave me alone. Like, anyone can do that. But that's, that's uh, you know, that's going to backfire, especially in a, in a work environment. And especially when you're talking to your employers, the people who are paying you and giving you a paycheck. You just, you, you can't talk to them that way. You can't talk to everyone however you want. It's just not how it works. And when they have something you need, which is like a paycheck, they have leverage over you. And part of being an adult is to, un- now it doesn't mean, doesn't mean you just do everything they say and you're their slave, no. But part of being an adult is understanding this. You know, understanding who has leverage and where your leverage is and how to use it and how to use it in a way that's not gonna backfire. So setting boundaries with tact is, is, the, uh, is the key there. As far as, you say, most people can put in all the effort in the world, but it doesn't translate to greater success. I, I don't know where you're getting that from. Like, where, where, how, how have you arrived at that conclusion? And it seems to me that we've got a lot of people who arrive at this conclusion almost immediately upon entering the working world, and that's the issue. You just got there, and you've already decided that no matter how hard you work, uh, it's, it's not going to matter. How could you possibly know that? I mean, you can only know that if you, if you work your absolute hardest for years and years and years and years, and then you look back and find that you did not climb up the ladder at all. Okay, well, then we have something to talk about. But what that's going to tell me is that you're, you know, maybe you're in the wrong line of work or you're working for the wrong company. In most cases... You know, it's, uh, there are people who just get lucky. There are people who are born with silver spoons and all of that. But in, in most cases, when you look at the people, you know, you look at people in, in a certain field and there are some who have had a lot of success and others who have had a, a moderate amount of success and others who have had no success. And, and, and you, you can find there's, there's a, you know, it's, it's easy to understand there's a pattern here. And the people who've had the most success have put in a lot more effort than the ones who have had none. That's usually the way it works. Well, if you haven't heard yet, Candace Owens is back from maternity leave with a vengeance. Her brand new show, Candace Owens, is available now on Daily Wire Plus and takes on the big topics of the day, uncovers lies, and exposes the hypocrisy in news and politics. And you know it's going to be done in typical Candace style, fearless and resolute. This is everything you love about Candace, and now she's streaming five days a week. You'll not want to miss it. Trust me when I say it is huge. So watch Candace Owens uh, now on Daily Wire Plus or listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, Make sure you join me today at 4 p.m. Central for um, an all-access live. I'll be answering your questions about the trans movement that is currently invading our country. So that's, again, going to be uh, today at uh, 4 o'clock at dailywire.com slash discuss. And is that it? That is it. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. As a frequent flyer myself who also experiences intense flying anxiety, I have developed very specific emotional needs while in the air. Um, now, I've long since learned to suppress my physical needs while flying. Like, like all other air travelers, I've grown accustomed to being treated like poultry stuffed in a cage and strapped onto the back of a semi barreling down the highway. Everything is cramped. There's no room to move around or stretch your legs. There's no concern for your comfort. On Spirit Airlines, you know, the analogy becomes quite literal because on Spirit in particular, the only snack they give you, and this is true, is they, they give you a handful of chicken feed, which the flight attendants toss in your lap as they walk down the aisle scowling at you. 
And of course, if you if you eat the, the chicken feed, then it, it's, like, it's an upcharge of $43 a, a person, I think. This is the modern flying experience. Uh, you sit there miserable, neglected, squished between a sumo wrestler and someone's emotional support llama. Unless you fly first class, of course, in which case you will enjoy the decadent luxury of being treated like a human being rather than livestock. In first class, you can engage in wild flights of fancy, such as uh, bending your knee and moving your elbow. In first class, the flight attendants will even mostly suppress their disdain for you, which is nice. And there are other perks too. Like in first class, uh, the airline does you the favor of making sure there's actually enough room in the overhead compartment for the carry-on baggage they said you could bring on the plane, as opposed to in the, the coach experience where half of the people have to check their bags, which they will likely never see again. That's just how it goes. And this is why I have lowered my standards and reduced my list of needs and expectations to really just one item. And that is, it's an emotional thing. For the sake of my emotional well-being, I only ask that the flight attendants do not appear visibly startled by turbulence. Because even a slightly raised eyebrow or a barely audible, whoa, is to me a signal that we all face certain death. So until today, my point is that, that, was, that was the one meager favor that I asked of the flight crew. But now it seems I must add one more item to the list. Because I also ask that the pilot does not cross-dress while flying. Um, I do not want to be an unwilling participant in a drag show 35,000 feet in the air, which is why I will certainly never fly Virgin Atlantic. Not that I ever would have flown them anyway, to be fair. But here's the story from CNN. It says, Virgin Atlantic has said that it is scrapping gendered uniform options in an effort to champion the individuality of its employees. The British airline announced in a press release on Wednesday that cabin crew, pilots, and ground staff can select which uniform they feel most comfortable in no matter their gender, gender identity, or gender expression. Optional pronoun badges will also become available for crew and passengers. Uh, Juha Jarvanen, who's Virgin Atlantic's chief commercial officer, said in the press release, the company believes it's important to encourage people to embrace their individuality and be their true selves at work. Jarvanen added, it is for that reason that we want to allow our people to wear the uniform that best suits them and how they identify and ensure our customers are addressed by their preferred pronouns. Now, if this seems a bit unsettling to you, don't worry, uh, because CNN quotes a judge from RuPaul's Drag Race who says that this is all a very good thing. And obviously, there could be no better authority on proper standards of conduct in air travel than a judge from RuPaul's Drag Race, at least according to CNN. Quote, Michelle Visage, who's a Michelle Visage, a judge on RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, who showcased the uniform alongside staff, welcomed the move. Quote, as the mother of a non-binary child and as an ally to the LGBTQ plus community, these efforts by Virgin Atlantic to further inclusivity for its people are extremely important and personal to me, she said in the press release. People feel empowered when they're wearing what best represents them. And this gender identity policy allows people to embrace who they are and bring their full selves to work. Virgin Atlantic said the changes are part of a wider initiative under its Be Yourself agenda. Well, this is great, you know, um, especially when coupled with the news from earlier in the year that airlines are lowering their recruiting requirements for pilots so as to create a more diverse and equitable workforce. So what that means is that your racially diverse, genderqueer, pansexual, drag queen pilot who goes by the name Captain Hot Pants or something, may not be the best equipped to fly the aircraft, but at least he's being himself. So you can... 
Here's the here's the commercial, by the way. Let's just pause and watch this commercial. This is an airline commercial. Like, you watch this and tell me. You, you want to fly this airline? This is what you want? Virgin Atlantic, see the world differently. Well, they certainly are delivering on that prop, prop, promise anyway. Anyway, as you're, as you know, you, you can take comfort at least as your uh, plane is nose diving into the Pacific. You can take, take comfort in the fact that your pilot lived by his truth and now he's dying by it and he's taking all of you with him, which is, which is really an honor, I guess. Now, I'm only being slightly facetious, facetious here. I actually do appreciate this move by Virgin Atlantic for two reasons. Okay, so for one thing, if the, uh, if the captain of my plane is emotionally and mentally unstable, I want to know that ahead of time. I actually want him to advertise that. And there's no better way for him to advertise it than by dressing in drag. Of course, this only works to the passenger's advantage if the pilot announces it prior to departure. And if the passengers who value their lives are then given an opportunity to deboard. So it would sound something like this, like, hi, folks, from the flight deck, this is your captain speaking. I will be taking off in about 10 minutes after a short taxi down the runway. Also, I am personally wearing a skirt for this evening's flight. Uh, my father didn't love me, and so this is what I'm doing now. I'll tell you more about it when we're in the air. Thanks for flying with us. So if there was an announcement like that, I mean, it could work out to everybody's advantage. But I don't think that's how it will work on Virgin Atlantic, so I suppose this potential positive is negated. But there is still this, that the whole stunt exposes the utter inanity and absurdity of the left's notion of individuality. Because first of all, this is not really individuality at all. When a man cross-dresses, he is not inventing a new style or doing something nobody's ever done before. He is rather embracing a different style, one that is ugly and disordered, but he didn't create it. This is not something that originates in the depths of his being. It originates in the culture. The culture has told him that this is a fashionable, brave, laudable way to dress and behave. He is, in fact, conforming. This is why you'll notice that drag queens, though they are supposed to be fierce individualists, all end up looking exactly the same. It's almost like there's a drag queen uniform, which happens to be modeled after early 90s Tim Burton films for whatever reason. This is true, too, of, of people who endeavor to be non-binary or androgynous in their style of dress. They all end up looking the same, right? Right down to the hairstyle and the facial piercings. There, there is a much, much greater and more vibrant and interesting variety of styles among men who dress like men and women who dress like women than there are among men and women who endeavor to break through these binary categories. They all end up looking like clones created in the back of a hot topic or something. Second, even though all of this be yourself stuff is basically a sham and modern culture's notion of an individual is far more rigid and restricting than ever, we, we also see here why individuality and being oneself are not the ideal in every situation, or even in most situations. Because to be an adult in a civilized society means controlling your impulses and conforming yourself to certain standards of conduct. As you go about your day, you find yourself in different roles, you know, all kinds of roles, as employee, as customer, as neighbor, as parent, as spouse. Some of these roles are situational, some endure and maintain every day, all day, through your whole life. But each role is accompanied by expectations and responsibilities. Things you're supposed to do and not do, say and not say, whether you like it or not. So you uh, bring your full self into each role in a physical and literal sense, 
but there may be aspects of your personality. Okay, there may be um, inclinations or preferences or predilections you have, which are not appropriate and should not be expressed or engaged in given the role or circumstance. So if you walk through life declaring that you're going to be yourself everywhere all the time, meaning that you'll simply do whatever you want, not respecting any standards or acknowledging any expectations, that everything in your life quickly breaks down and you begin to fail in every role and thus in life itself. Nowhere could this be more obvious than in the context of air travel. Because when we are in a metal tube, 35,000 feet in the air, hurtling along at 600 miles an hour, it isn't the place for anyone to be their true selves or express themselves individually. Nobody. Like, I don't want anyone on the plane doing that. Given the stakes and the consequences if things go wrong, and given that we're all stuck in close proximity to each other and that none of us can immediately exit the situation without suffering rather significant consequences, um, an airplane is then a place for decorum and professionalism. I want very little personal expression from the person sitting next to me, even less do I want it from the pilot. None of us are on the plane in order so that we can get to know the captain on an intimate and personal level. None of us are interested in his true self. That's not why we pay exorbitant sums to board the aircraft. We don't want the pilot to express himself. We want him to express the plane from point A to point B, and that's it. We simply want to arrive at our destination, and we want the flight crew to get us there as quickly and safely as possible and with little, as little drama as possible. Um, flamboyant individualism has never kept a plane in the sky. Engineering and physics is what keeps the plane in the sky, along with the expertise and professionalism on the part of the people in the cockpit. So that should be the focus. And I shouldn't have to say this, but this is also why you should not be cross-dressing while flying the plane. That is also why Virgin Atlantic is today canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.